Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a career development podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, looking to change your perspective, or just rediscover your why. I'm your host, Harsha Borolesa, and this podcast came about from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. In each episode, I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them about their career journey, their real life experiences, and to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you to take a fresh look at your career and assist you on your path to a more successful and fulfilling career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. Life is hard uh, and you've got to treasure it. You've got to work at it. If you accept your life, if you accept your existence, generally that's what you'll get. We all need purpose. We all need drive. We all, we all need to understand where we're going. If you want stuff, you've sort of got to forge it yourself. You, you can't just wait for something to fall in your lap. Hi, this is Harsha. And I wanted to mention a couple of things before we dive into the show. Firstly, thanks so much to you, the listeners, for your continued support. The podcast was recently included at eight in the list of the best 20 UK career podcasts and is close to 2,400 downloads. The YouTube channel just passed 4,500 views and none of this would have been possible without you. If you have any feedback or would just like to say hello, feel free to get in touch via my social media channels or email me at the address in the show notes. I will be taking a short break from the podcast in December and the next episode will be released on Wednesday, the 5th of January, which will feature Dr. Ruth Gautian, the winner of the prestigious Thinkers 50 Radar Award and the author of The Success Factor, which will be published in January. I also recently released a full-length interview on YouTube with my good friend, Emily West, where we talk about how to create a fulfilling career, strategies for finding a new job, and for developing in your current role. The link is in the show notes. I will still be releasing content on the YouTube channel, so please keep an eye out, and it would be great if you would subscribe to the channel. Finally, I would like to wish everybody an enjoyable holiday break and a happy new year. I look forward to joining you again on Wednesday, the 5th of January. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Jamie Cox. Hi, Jamie. Hi, Harsha. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us uh, today, Jamie. And, and I no think problems. I, outside your window, I think you've got a, an amazing office with a view of <laughs> Lord's Cricket Ground. I'm highly envious. Yeah, um, so would a lot of people be. It's it's a very fortunate part of the role that I get to sit every day and um, yeah, look at look across this magnificent ground. It's uh, uh, a true delight. Very good. Jamie was a successful professional cricketer in both England and Australia, representing Somerset and Tasmania. He scored in excess of eighteen thousand five hundred first class runs, as well as almost six thousand in List A matches. After his cricketing career, Jamie moved into sports administration and completed a law degree with the Open University in the process. He has subsequently gone on to hold senior roles across a number of organisations, including the Australian Institute of Sport, Cricket Australia, the South Australia Cricket Association, St Kilda Football Club and Cricket Tasmania. Jamie is currently the Assistant Secretary Cricket and Operations at the Maribyrn Cricket Club, the MCC, where he looks after all the cricket departments, including the delivery of the outmatch programme, which sees the club play around 500 fixtures each year, and also the important overseas touring schedule. He is also responsible for delivery of the World Cricket Committee. Welcome, Jamie. G'day, Harsha. Pleasure to join you. Thanks so much for um, giving, giving up your time. We're recording this the day after um, Azim Rafiq's testimony in Parliament, but hopefully this is the start of a new chapter for cricket. To um, kick off the show, do you have a, a quote that you would like to share with our listeners? A quote? Well, something I've always lived by is that the winning games are people business, which you know, is something I've always believed, as whether it was a cricket captain uh, or an administrator or a national selector, was really you're only as good as the people around you. And it's a bit cliched, I guess, but it's certainly something uh, as you get older and spend more time in organisations, you understand the power of having a good team. 
And if you really want to succeed in business or in life, you need to have good people around you, whether they're you know good close family, good close friends, or good close business associates. It's uh, it's it's critically important. I'm sure Steve Waugh and Mark Taylor liked having uh, Glenn McGrath and Shane Warne in the same same side. Uh, I think you're well, right. It helps, it helps if they're incredibly talented people as well as good people. That's, uh, that, that, that makes a bit of a difference too. Totally. And I, I suppose sort of taking it back to the beginning, how, how did you become interested in cricket? Was it through your family like most of us? Yeah, I guess I feel very fortunate to have grown up where I did. I grew up in a country town in Tasmania, on the northwest coast of Tasmania. I was part of a very sporting family. You know, in, in Australia in those days, it was Australian rules footy in the winter and cricket in the summer. And I pretty much lived halfway between the career club and the football club. So, you know, I was geographically very well positioned and just really fortunate to be involved in a family that really introduced me serendipitously to both games and to a lifetime in sport. It was you know, it was pretty seamless, really. I lived in a neighbourhood with lots of mates. Uh, we're always playing footy, we're always playing cricket. And, and you sort of, I think you lose sight of how much of the game or any games you sort of learn in those formative years. But now, look, everything about my childhood was uh, was really fortunate. Harsha, I, you know, we certainly weren't a wealthy family, but but certainly in, in life experiences, uh, I was given every opportunity, and I, I was lucky enough to play both cricket and football inside really experienced teams. You know, I had my, my first sporting heroes were the guys that I played, you know, early senior football or cricket with. So it was, as I said, I didn't realise at the time, but but it gave me a perfect grounding for uh, for what was to follow. Very similar to you. Um, my, my parents are originally from Sri Lanka, obsessed with cricket. So really, I had no choice. Um, and my dad used to bolt, bolt to me in the back, back garden. And, and it's funny, I think sometimes when you're playing these sports uh, and, and you, you learn the game, as long as it's fun, then you're not really thinking about it as work and, and you get into that work ethic. And I'm sure that must be the same for you with practice. Um, you just enjoyed it. Even from a young age, trained pretty hard. But nothing sort of uh, got in the way. Oh, I'd, I'd love playing. I love playing sport. I love playing football or cricket. You know, always stood by a very wise adage that cricket in particular is a game that you, you learn how to play cricket. You can't teach cricket. Like you've got to get in it. You've got to play it. You've got to understand it, unpack it. You've got to make mistakes because that's effectively what the game's all about. Uh, learn from them and just get to work to make them better. I mean, these habits you learn, I mean, I was lucky enough to learn them pretty early because that's some good influences around me, um, some people who I trusted. Um, who taught me those good habits from a young age. So it was, um, again, pretty fortunate. And, and I believe that you were an opening uh, batter. Is that right? And I think for, I was, people, yep. yeah, and I think for people who are unfamiliar with cricket, um, I think it's one of the hardest roles um, in, in the team, especially for a, a bats, batter, because you're facing the, generally the best and fastest bowlers when they're freshest. And with a, a new ball, which is, is much more difficult to control as a batter. So obviously there's this high likelihood of failure. And I, I myself was an opening batsman, Jamie, so I can totally empathise with what it's like to be out on the first ball uh, of the match and then have nothing to do apart from field and cheer on your teammates for the rest of the day. But uh, in, in terms of failure, um, obviously generally with a batsman, you have a high probability of failing. But I think as an opening batter, it's even even more. How did you learn to deal with that failure? Uh, firstly, you know, you can look at opening the batting whichever way you like. It's, uh, yes, you are. You've got the fastest and freshest coming at you with a brand new ball, but you've also got a lot of fielders positioned behind you. So you've got a lot of gaps. You've got a lot of scoring opportunities. And generally, as much pressure as there is on you as a batsman, there's a similar amount of pressure on the bloke who's trying to get you out. I mean, he's got to strike with a new ball. So... You can actually think your way through that and balance out the pressure, if you like, pretty evenly. So one of the real keys to having success as a batter is, is to understand that is a game of managing failure. And I don't say that lightly. I mean, the greatest player that's ever lived, Sir Donald Bradman, played, oh, I forget the stats, but I think it's something like 50-odd test matches. And I reckon, he batted, I reckon he batted for Australia probably about 80-odd times. He, only, he made 2,900s. Now, when I say only made 2,900s, that's, that's a good outcome, but... That also tells you that you know, a man who, ever, who averaged almost 100 in the game failed 51 times. So by his standards, he spent a lot of time experiencing failure inside the game. So, you know, I call it the game of life, and I don't say that flippantly. It, it is a game that's hard. Simple errors turn into monumental 
wasted opportunities. And it's only as you sort of mature that you understand when to make the most of those opportunities. And you know, ironically, mate, a lot of people have asked me, if you go back across your career, what would you have done? And I said, well, one of the obvious answers, and it sounds pretty simple, so I wouldn't have got out as much. Um, <laughs> and it sounds stupid, but, but what I mean by that is the amount of times as a batsman you actually contribute significantly to your own downfall. Uh, is way more often than when a bowler actually physically knocks you over. So as you get older, you treasure those moments. You value the, the, the preciousness that is in innings um, and you try and make it count. And that's, I, I try and think of the game simply and I try and process it simply and explain it simply whenever I'm talking to anyone about it now. It's because um, it's it can be very complex. And as cricketers, we can all go to some pretty dark places at times when uh, when we can't figure out what's going on. Um, I love the way you you actually reframe the situation there, Jamie. Not to take a pun, but I think a lot of a lot of life is about reframing failure and thinking about okay, I've made this mistake or this person has has done well. How can I learn from that and take that forward? But I also think from a um, a business or career perspective, there are a lot of times where we contribute to our own failures. And actually, if you can try and minimise that and learn learn from those failures. I think that makes a, a huge difference. Um, what do you think, Jamie? 100%. Life's hard. And I say this to my kids all the time. It's you've you got to work at life. You know, you, you can't just, I mean, we all go through wonderful periods in life where stuff just seems to fit into place, but we all go through horrible times, you know, whether they be personal times or financial times or employment times or, or whatever they are. I mean, life is, life is hard uh, and you've got to treasure it. You've got to work at it. And above all else, my simple mantra is you just got to keep moving forward. It's, COVID's been tough for everyone. It hasn't just been tough for individuals. Uh, it's been tough for business. It's been tough for pretty much everyone across the earth. And the only thing I was focused on during that period and in life in general is just you've got to move forward. You've got to make sure that wherever you are each day, you're somewhere in front of where you were yesterday. And that's, I've always found anyway, if you take that simple approach, other stuff sort of works because you're always going to be dealing with you know something in your life that's not perfect at any particular moment. Just deal with it. Deal with it and move forward is, is sort of my mantra that I try and live by. I love that. And the whole idea, I think, about just taking uh, a step. And I think taking action is so important because people overthink what the next step is. But actually, if you say to yourself, look, I'm going to try, obviously, you have to do some thinking, but actually, you need to execute, you need to take that step, you need to stay in motion, because otherwise, you're paralyzed you know, by fear. It's that analysis paralysis thing, isn't it? That it's a good not- point. I mean, they, you, you, you know, the best way to get action is just, just start doing something. If you're not quite sure what it is, just, just start doing. And it's amazing the amount of times you actually find your way when you, when you actually start off, on a, start off on a journey. You know, of course, you've got to spend some time planning and understanding and figuring out. But you know, I've often found the best way to do it is just get active, get active, do something. That's what it takes. And you start to divert off and find it, what it is that you're supposed to be doing or want to be doing. I'm very much about getting active, move forward. Don't just sit idle and wait for stuff to happen. That's a great point. And actually sort of moving on on from that in terms of failure and, and re- reframing it. I remember the first time we met, we um, talked about the Stockdale paradox. And I think yeah. you found that very interesting from that you know, great book by you know, Jim Collins, Good, Good to Great. Now, how, how do you find that that concept has helped you? Did, did you know that while you were playing cricket or was that something you picked up afterwards? I knew the Stockdale Paradox prior to reading Good to Great, um, ironically, and just found it such a wonderful life lesson. This whole idea that, you know, no matter how good or bad life is, you've always got to maintain this firm belief that you'll prevail in the end. But but don't ever confuse that with how bad your circumstances might be at any one particular time. It's it's a really great lesson. And obviously, the, the meaning that sits behind it and the Stockdale stories are quite an extraordinary one. But I think it has some wonderful things. It sort of goes back to what I was saying before. You know, life's not easy. You've just got to get a grip on how, how dire is the circumstance I'm in. Uh, I'll, I'll be okay here. I'll, I'll be okay, but I've just got to understand. I've got to deal with this. I've got to deal with some stuff now. And before I can move on, I've got to, I've got to have left something behind. Now, I think it's a, it's a wonderful paradox. You understand reality, but you're trying to bend it and shape it uh, in a way that will help you understand things are not great at the moment, but there is a, a path and a solution. You may not know that now. You know, Hopefully, it will come to you if you uh, stick in there and, and do the work. Yeah, I mean, in, in general terms, a life coach I had a bit to do with back in Australia is very firm in the point that we've only got one focus. 
you know, whilst we can multitask and keep multiple balls in the air, at the end of the day, you've really only got one true focus. If you really want to do something well, you've got to understand what it is and, and just go at it hard. In all of our lives, we've always got multiple pieces that we've got to sort of try and balance and keep going. But if you really want to nail something, I think you've just got to narrow your focus for a period of time and make sure that, you know, you can actually stay on task, uh, get that done and then move on to what's next. I think that's a great point. And, and one interesting thing about the Stockdale paradox, or uh, actually Admiral Stockdale, that I didn't realize was that he was actually a vice presidential candidate in 1992. Uh, yep. It was on the Ross Perot ticket, and that had totally passed me by. But that's quite a, a interesting uh, fact uh, for our listeners. In terms of um, pressure, obviously, uh, sports people have to deal with that constantly. Are there any particular strategies that you found that helped you, um, you know, while you were playing uh, top-level sport? And w- w- did they help you in your sort of later business life? It's a bit of a chicken and egg thing. I'm not quite sure what came first. I don't know. I've always had a fairly calm demeanour, I guess, and an ability to sort of think quite clearly in most circumstances. And whether that got created by cricket or whether that enabled me to have a career in cricket, I'm really not quite sure what came first. But it's something that I do pride myself on, the ability just to be calm, gather your thoughts. And, and once again, my, my whole process around trying to move forward is, is make a decision. Don't dwell on things. Make a decision, even if it's the wrong one. You know, make, make, a, make a bad decision quickly, they say. You know, in, in simple terms, you know, dealing with pressure, you know, it's, it's psychologically proven. Pressure is something that comes from outside, not from in. I've always tried to, you know, again, place a lot of real clarity of thought around pressure moments and really truly understand how big is it, you know? Is, is this a big deal? If What happens if – what's the worst that can happen today, you know? If I can you – know, cricket to me was a game. I love to play it and I love to succeed at it, but I also had this realistic – you know, going back to the Stockdale paradox, I had this realistic view that there's going to be a lot of days where it doesn't work out. So – but by the same token – as a sports person, you've got to be brutally honest. You've got to be brutally honest with what happened today. Why didn't I succeed? Bank that learning to move forward. So that's why I say that, you know, the Stockdale paradox is, a, is just a powerful, it's a powerful tool because it sort of applies to most things you do in life. That's a great point about learning um, from failure and actually being honest because I think, unfortunately, some people find it very hard to accept failure and that the, things haven't gone well. But actually, it's only by looking at um, when things haven't gone well and analysing that and picking up those points that you'll be able to um, implement that for the future. So I, I just lo- I love that point there, there Jamie. It's, it's the only way we learn. It's nice to get everything right, but you tend to not learn a lot in, in that process. You, you learn by the magnitude of mistakes, and we're, and we're, all, we're all a consequence of past failure, quite frankly. You know, we're all what we are today is basically what's happened behind us and how we've adapted and adjusted to be the person we are today. So, you know, I'll be the first to admit that, you know, life, I've had a very fortunate life. You know, I've been in sport my whole life and I've loved it, but it hasn't been smooth sailing. You know, I've had some, some, some moments where you've had to really dust yourself off and move forward and having that strength to refocus and move forward. And I like that point about pressure because I think sometimes you have to force yourself to be uncomfortable. And I, especially I think going forward, the world is changing so rapidly. You know, you had the, obviously the financial crash, then you've had the COVID and you thought, oh my God, that's a once in a generational thing. Then you've had COVID, which really is a, you know, a, a huge nightmare. But I think you know, going forward, it's the people who can adapt quickly and say to yourself, okay, what's happened has happened, grieve, but then move on. Whereas I think if you're grieving for the life that you had, um, you, you just can't move forward. Um, and what, what do you think, Jamie? Well, again, mate, I, I, was, I was consulting in Australia at the time of COVID. And within, within an hour, one Friday afternoon, I'd had two contracts, two phone calls, yeah. two contracts gone. You know, I remember sitting down that afternoon, grabbed a beer, sat down with the wife and said, guess what? I don't have a job. <laughs> um, but it didn't bother me. Like, I was actually okay. You know, I was like, well, we're okay. You know, we've, I was 50 years old. We've got enough behind us. We, we, we can ride this through. We're, we're all safe. We're all happy. We're all fine. And it, it gave me that opportunity to really reset. And what I actually ended up doing for six months last year, I was actually walking walking a factory floor, uh, d- uh, sorting mail in effect. Oh, wow. and, um, but because my other work started to pick up again pretty quickly. But I'd started this other role as helping out a mate initially. And then the more I did it, the more I actually thought that it was actually quite cathartic in some ways because it was sort of showing me and teaching me that 
life's not you know, life's not easy. You've got to roll your sleeves up and get stuck in. You, you've got to you've got to earn your own success and, and forge your own future. And this was my own way of saying this is COVID. This is tough for everyone. Do what you got to do for now, knowing that on the out on the back end of this, there'll be something really cool. Now, what I didn't see at the time is that really cool thing was going to be looking out at Lords. You know, it, it's funny how life works like that. But in some ways, that was my that was my way of coping with COVID was just saying, well, look, I, I can still do my consulting work. There was a bit coming back and that was all okay. And because I went and did this other work, you know, financially, my family were probably almost better off than we were pro previous. So it was, life was busy. It was tiring, but it helped me sort of rebuild. It helped me toughen in some ways. And it helped me sort of realize that if you want stuff, you've sort of got to forge it yourself. You, you can't just wait for something to fall in your lap. That's an interesting point, Jamie, you make about work because, you know, you, you go into, say, a supermarket, uh, you know, you look at those people uh, during COVID, those guys were um, you know, complete saviors because without them um, stocking up the shelves, making sure there's food, um, you know, we, and all the other you know, public transport and, and whatever, not glamorous jobs, not well paid, but actually without those people, um, we, we would have been in real trouble. And, and in a way, you know, the, the things that we do, yeah, they are work, but in, in relative terms. But it's those guys, you know, as, as you found uh, sorting out mail, that's tough, backbreaking work. And it's, you know, you've got to put, take your hat off to, to those guys and girls. That was my time to go and do a bit of that. And actually, I did it almost, you know, with a, with a spring in my step sort of whistling my way around the, around the, around the warehouse because I was, don't get me wrong, I wasn't delighted by the fact that I was walking a warehouse floor, but they were good people. You know, you felt like you're fulfilling a purpose. I was getting out of the house. I lost about five kilograms because I was on my feet. <laughs> Not that I had a lot to lose, but I was on my feet for sort of eight hours a day. So we sort of had, I looked at the benefits. I looked at the way of, and as I said, I just maintained this firm belief that th- this is quite temporary. And for now, it's okay. You know, life's fine. Just, just get stuck in, roll your sleeves up and, and just keep your eyes open for, for, for time when we start to evolve out of this. So uh-huh. it, it was, it, it gave me purpose at the end of the day, which is, which is really important. What did your colleagues think of having a top class sportsman in their midst and a <laughs> former Australian selector? <laughs> well, you know what? The funny thing when you're working, walking around an office, a warehouse floor and no one gives a damn. And that's, um, that was sort of cool. I really enjoyed that. I was doing it with a couple of mates. So I didn't. I sort of threw that bit in as well. But there, there were a couple of work colleagues who were in a similar situation. We all sort of went did, 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 went and did this together. So no one really cared that you'd done any of that stuff. Um, and I said I really enjoyed that part um, because I didn't want special privilege or you know I just wanted to come and wanted to come and walk the floor. And you know whether it was driving a pallet jack or you know, whatever it was, it was it was sort of fun. I don't want to do it again, but it was um, for that time of life. It was it, it filled a niche. Well, well, at least you can tell your kids when they start moaning about how hard their life is, how you walked around the the, fa- uh, the warehouse floor. Yeah, well, they're sick of me saying that. They're sick of me saying whenever they have a tough day in whatever it is they're doing, and generally it's you know it's pretty mild as a rule. I tend to say that you know life's hard. Well, how are you going to fix it? What are you going to do about it? All this kind of thing. And they sort of look at me as if to say, Dad, shut up, can you? Just give me a bit of sympathy. But they know that I'm sympathising. They know that I've got their back. But they also know that my job's to, to teach them that, hey, this is okay. You know, it's, it's, it's normal. It's not abnormal to have tough days, and tough moments. In actual fact, very few of us don't have them. So, um, so just, just it's all about how you bounce up and move on. And I think that that tough love, I think, is so important, you know, whether it's a boss or, you know, a, a colleague that I think if they realize look, they're, they're doing this to help you move forward, because I think sometimes you can sugarcoat things too much. And it's just a question of, look, this needs to be done. This isn't glamorous or whatever. OK, there is there are going to be days when you know, the, the whole point of work is that you are working to get money. It's not yep. always about a career. Um, so sometimes you just have to say, look, you have to suck it up and, and just move forward, don't you? Oh, totally. Oh, I've been lucky to have some jobs that I, I just feel blessed to have had and had a fantastic work existence uh, and worked for some great bosses. So, you know, it's 
but, but at the end of the day, mate, it's, it's work. And you know, I know a lot of people haven't been as blessed and literally have jobs where maybe they don't want to go, but they've got to support their family. They've got to support yeah. themselves. I would say, look, that almost comes back to the Stockdale paradox. Don't, don't ever lose sight of the fact that what's got to get done today, but always keep your eyes on what it is you want to do and try and drive towards a better future. You know, it's, it, it, it's always out there if, if you want to make it so. Uh, if you accept your life, if you accept your existence, generally that's what you'll get. So it's not always that complex. I think that's a great point you made, Jamie, about you know, looking into the future, because I think if you apply imagination and creativity, um, you say to yourself, these are my skills, but I can almost reinvent myself or apply them in different ways. And actually, if you have a love for a particular area, then actually just ideas come about or you chat, chat with your mates. Because I mean, say on this podcast, I had no podcasting experience. I had no creativity some people will still say, I have no podcasting experience <laughs> and no creativity, but that's no. not the point. My, my parents like my podcasts and, and I do. That's good. <laughs> but, but, I, but I think in a way it's, it's trying to use imagination and say, look, where can I get to in the future? I mean, and especially I think as a sportsman, um, it's tough because you, you do your 20 years. If you're, if you're lucky, you do it, do it really hard. Hopefully you've earned a bit of money, put some set aside but the majority of sportsmen don't have enough to to live on so you have to start thinking okay i've got these skills how can i reinvent myself how can i repackage myself what are the things that i've learned which are going to help me uh, go forward and i suppose for a lot of people those are the things they're thinking about in their careers i've i've you know you can do a degree and you can get so far but i think it's a constant c- case of um reinvention um i mean what, what do you think jamie yeah, similar. Um, anyone who gets to make it to an elite sport level, but particularly anyone who gets to play it for a decent period of time, generates a pretty good skill set. And I'd probably, I mean, I don't like to compare sport with military just because I think they're very, you know, I don't like trivialising war and war effort. But I always, you know, whenever I look at CVs, you know, as an employer, sometimes you get inundated with CVs. I'll often look at what people do outside of their careers. Um, so effectively, they've, they've had a work career here. I'm always interested as whether they've, I don't know, captained a sporting team or done some army reserve training or even if they've come from more formal military backgrounds. What I know I'm getting is someone who's got a strong self-discipline, yeah. somebody who understands and they're, I don't think there's few things more important, quite frankly, than that that real internal drive and self-discipline that can actually means that someone's got a bit of something about them. And I'll always back that person in. than someone who I've got doubts about in that sense who might have a more specific skill set for the role that I need. You know, I'll I'll generally back the human over the over the formal qualifications, I guess, um, because mostly that's what I think gets jobs done. Good people, you know, good people coming together can achieve really, really extraordinary things. You just need to find you need to find those people who are prepared to dig in. And I think that idea of discipline, I, I think that's definitely one of the things that you know I picked up from sport. Yeah, you know, I think you know, self discipline. Basically, even if you're in a team sport, you have to take ownership for your own development. I think waiting for the coach to point out your flaws is yeah, you know, he he just has too much you know, to do. So I think the really clever people will analyze you know, how they've got out uh, and figure out, okay, is this something, was it a good ball or was it something that I did and then uh, provide correction? It's almost self-coaching, but then there are things like teamwork, um, you know, just getting on with other people because you know, you know what it's like. You're not going to be best mates with everybody in the team. There may be yeah. two or three people you, you like, and then there's some more you tolerate and there are definitely some people you don't like. But you have to yeah. get on with them, and yep. w- w- without that, the team just doesn't work. And I suppose when you're in the working environment, it's it's the same thing. You just have to get on with everybody, so that you're you're moving in the same direction. I oh, know no one can drive you like you can yourself, and if and unless you're self driven and self motivated, then you know you're probably going to have a life of just okay. And and for some that's fine. You know, some people that's all they aspire to be, and I have absolutely no beef if. That's you. Some of the great examples I've seen, I've seen it across cricket and football, and I've also seen it in a business life where some of the most unique experiments or exercises I've seen done is where training's planned, players turn up, and the coach decides 
he's not going to turn up. You know, and quite strategically, not that he's just slept in or whatever, but the coach just decides he's going to go sit in the grandstand and watch what happens. And I've seen that succeed and I've seen it just fail dismally. And I've also seen a CEO set up and structure a staff meeting without a formal agenda, but then not turn up. You know, little did we know at the time, he's looking through a window out the side just to sort of see what happens. Who are the leaders? Who steps up? Who takes charge? Who who can still cope? But Or who is it that looks around and is thinking, what are we doing? They're, they're really great social science exercises to just see how people respond when that formal leadership decides to just step back and watch watch and see who's going to come up beneath them. So it's that, that self-discipline, that self-drive, that self-motivator, mate, is there's few things more critical because you know we all need purpose we all need drive we all, we all need to understand where we're going and how it is we're going to get there and that's uh, that's generally something that other people they, they can't really add that for you and I think that's a great point you make about the CEO or the coach not being there because I think um, a lot of times people are looking they, they want to be led too much and actually when you take the onus on yourself and say to yourself okay the, the leader is there but actually I can I can make these decisions to some extent but also having the leader there people sometimes get put off from actually coming up with things uh, which are different or left field because essentially they don't want to criticize the boss um what do you think Jay? yeah it's pretty oh, it's pretty bold i mean i've you know i've i've actually sat as a program manager in, in both those sporting examples, but I was, a, also, I was a subordinate to the CEO that decided to do this. I've seen this on both sides, and I've actually encouraged both coaches in cricket and football to, to head down this path. I don't mind saying it took me a while to convince both to do it. Like, you know, coaches by their very nature are pretty intense. I won't call them control freaks, but they, they, they like to have their fingers in most of the operation. So to, to, to develop, and I saw it as a key part of their development, to actually convince them that just – you know, the world's not going to fall over here. It's okay, just step back and just see what happens when you're not there. And I said one of those worked really well. The other one was a pretty dismal failure, but it teaches you a lot about your group, it teaches you a lot about your team. Who, who, are the, who are the leaders? And it's okay if you're not a leader, but just be a good doer. That's, that's also pretty important, um, but it does teach you a lot. That's a great point about not, not just sport, but just life in general, that you have to take ownership you have to take responsibility you know when you cross the white line uh, and you go out as a batter or a, a, a football player you you have to take responsibility nobody else can play the game for you um, and I love that about sport is that it's it really does um, tell some, something about your own character yeah, I, I don't know if you like playing tennis but I, I love that one-on-one um, sort of competition then because even if you're not good you can still mentally figure out yeah always figure out ways to win maybe the tactics yep. hit it to their backhand hit it to their forehand move them around the court but it's that strategic element and the whole idea of, of pressure sometimes in team sports um, people don't like to have that intense pressure on on themselves. But, you know, that's a great thing about one-on-one sports, isn't it? That you have that intense pressure on yourself and you just have to find an answer to some extent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, I've often, not often, I remember once about 15 years ago, I got asked the question at a typical sort of sportsman's night, who's the player you'd want most to bat for your life? Uh, and, of course, my answer was me, which most people sort of in the room, are, oh, you know, you're <laughs> arrogant so-and-so. It's like, well, no, no, I was just a good average player but I can promise you there's no one going to care more about my life than me. Um, <laughs> so if anyone's going to be batting for my life, I'd rather have that control in my hands than hand it over to somebody else. So when you explain it in those terms, it's a pretty straightforward answer, but it sort of drives the point I'm trying to say here is that unless you're determined and prepared to do something about it yourself, don't expect anyone else to be. You know, There's going to be a lot of people that care intimately and deeply about your future and how you go about it, but no one's going to care more than you. So just just don't wait. Don't wait for somebody else to tell you what to do or to, to lead you forward. Just move forward yourself. That's a great point. And, and actually, Jamie, just in terms of your, your sporting career, obviously did you know, incredibly well for Tasmania and Somerset, you know, captained them for a couple of years. And I think you won a couple of trophies. Is that right when you're in at Somerset? Uh, just the one, just oh, out here, one. actually. <laughs> just uh, I'm looking down at the mark where... Um, where I was lucky enough to lift a trophy for Somerset in 2001, it was it was uh, it was undoubtedly the best day I had in the game. It was uh, it was an extraordinary day. I didn't have I didn't win a lot of trophies harsher during my career, so I certainly remember that one. Just in terms of international recognition, did you come close to playing for Australia, or how how did that work out? Honestly, I don't know, and that's the okay. beauty of selection. In those days, you just didn't unless you were talked to by the selectors, you didn't 
sort of worry about it too much. These days, players ask for more feedback and the world's just a different place. But that, that I, honestly, I don't know. I'd like to think, you know, with the numbers that I produced over a long period of time, I couldn't have been a long way off. But, mate, I'm really at peace. All I do know, having been a selector now, that if I had been the option, the best option in my time, I would have played. I wasn't, so I didn't. It is almost that simple. People have said, you know, I played in a great time. And I did. There's no doubt about that. The players that played ahead of me were extraordinary, some of Australia's finest. Reality is, mate, I wasn't good enough in my time. And um, I have no regrets. I certainly haven't looked back and you know, felt, oh, woe is me because of an opportunity I might have had. The reason why I asked that is not to obviously bring up old wounds, but I think it's a really interesting um, exercise in, in psychology because when you start off as a young kid, you always want to you know, get to that next level. You, know, you, you want to play for your state at junior level. Then you want to get that pro contract. You want to play for your state as a pro and then obviously play uh, for, your, for the national team. And you're always thinking, how can I get to the next level? And that, that was the same with me. Unfortunately, I, I only got to second 11 for Essex. So definitely not, not your level. But uh, how did it feel when you, you, when you didn't um, you know, get picked for Australia? Was it one of those things you just learned to live with? Because um, you seem to be pretty philo- philosophical. And I think that's... I am now. Yeah. Yeah, no, don't get me wrong, Harsha. I, look, I've, I've made peace with it really quickly, but I, I tend, that's, that's my nature a bit. I tend to move on quickly. Um, I've already mentioned that a few times, but uh, don't get me wrong, I can be very philosophical in hindsight. There, there were times during my career where it was incredibly frustrating, where you think, you know, I have scored more runs than anyone else going around yet, and there appears to be an opportunity, yet I'm not being picked. Yeah, we all have those thoughts. We, are, we all think we can sometimes be maybe closer to something than what we are. That's why you keep going. That's why you try and get better. That's why it drives you to perform. But whether I was or I wasn't, mate, I said, who knows? And at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. I was was so blessed to spend as long as I have in the game and to still be in it, you know, 30 years later, uh, 20 years later is – is incredibly fortunate. So you know, I can't be I can't be sad about what the game's given me for sure. But but I think the, the point you bring up is that look, regardless of whether you get to the the level that you want to get to, I think it's very much about pushing yourself forward, and 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 it's about reframing it. And I think you, what, what I always felt was look, you know, life is short. You can only be young for that. There is a particular window of of opportunity, especially as a sportsman. And I think sometimes people and and even in life, there's a particular window of opportunity. And I think you can't um, wait too long. So when you have that chance and when you have that opportunity, you just have to go for it. And whether the chips go in your favor or not, I mean, you, imagine if you had played maybe five or ten years later when the England won the Ashes in 2010-11. You probably would have been picked for Australia, but unfortunately, you were uh, you know, there when I, I think obviously Ricky Ponting was there. Um, with the war still around at that time, Slater. Yeah, that might- my year is a bit. My year is a bit earlier. So yeah, Mark Taylor, Michael Slater, yeah. Matthew Elliott, Matthew Hayden, Justin Langer. Like there's there's five. Greg Blewett. There's some pretty good opening batters in all that group. Yeah. So, but yeah, no. Look, as I said, it was it was still a joy to be involved. I, I that 2010 group. I mean, part of my pain in that was I was actually selecting the team at that stage. So um, when you're a national selector and you've just lost the Ashes, that's that's when pressure does ramp up. It's when everything's suddenly your fault because you picked the wrong players. It's never the player's fault or the coach's fault. It's always the selector's fault. You know, once again, I, I, I'm, my tongue's in my cheek because, you know, as a selector, you never quite saw it that way. It was just, oh, well, all we can do is pick the best team. It's a pretty simple task at the end of the day. Just moving on for, from, uh, to your life uh, post-cricket, you know, how, how did you find the transition? Was it something you had prepared for um, or what strategies did you use, um, Jamie? I was probably, I wouldn't say I was unique, but I had some unique qualities in that I was preparing well and truly well before cricket ended. I've often wondered whether or not it cost me, I wasn't the guy that actually could throw every living piece of energy I had into my cricket. I always liked to work alongside it because I thought it gave me a good perspective on the game. I always wanted cricket to, to stay a game. I never wanted it to be my life. I never wanted it to be what paid the bills, in effect. Um, I wanted to play it for fun. I wanted to enjoy it. And as a pro, I was always really lucky. I think I can say this hand on heart. The only time I ever walked onto a cricket pitch not wanting to be there was the second last day I ever did it. It, it, it was a strategy that worked, but did it cost me an opportunity to play at another level? Look, I don't know. But my preparations were made 
well in advance. I was, you know, I started in career counselling, ironically, and spent some time working with teammates, just as a volunteer to start with, just talking to mates over a beer. And I said, what are you doing? How are you preparing for, you know, these were guys, well, we all know the numbers, you know, that there's a lot more careers that don't work than those that do in sport. So I was always really conscious of trying to convince my mates at the time that you should be doing something else. You know, you should be just chipping away, whether it's networking, which sport gives you an amazing opportunity. You come across some awesome people um, in the game to, to actually spend some time with. And if you're getting paid to play sport, go and volunteer your services. Go and, you know, go and, go and work in a business of someone you know and just volunteer a day's work and, and help pick up the skills and the disciplines and everything that's required to, to actually help you transition. Because there's one inevitable moment is that, I don't know, unless you're playing snooker or darts or something where you can actually play you know well in your advanced years then yeah. it's going to end and i was lucky i got 35 you know i, I got to lost 35 until it ended sadly not too many are, are that fortunate where where they get to go on their own terms almost the end for a lot of people is very difficult and i think sometimes even in a normal uh, business career Sometimes you only do have a, a finite run in one company. So I think it's always important for uh, one to look at the you know, two to three years down, down the road and think, look, is my role still going to be relevant at that point? Yeah. Or should I be looking somewhere else or should I be getting some new skill? Because, because otherwise, I think when the change happens and, and it's sudden, then and, and you're unprepared, it's, it's quite tough, isn't it? Because mentally you're just not prepared at all. Yeah, and I think that's it's an underrated jump. I mean, what we tend to do is we focus a lot on our formal qualifications and our work experience. But I can tell you from personal experience and from so many other sportsmen I've spoken to, the thing you miss the most is that competitive outlet. That almost, and there's, there's a couple of bits to this, the, the regimentation of a training program, uh, but also that competitiveness where you can actually, whether it's individual or as a team, get that out and, and actually put that on display. And that's... It's something you really miss. You sort of train a specific way to to to, to you know to, to actually carry out a task. Suddenly, your purpose disappears. If you've got a if you've got a job to go to, it often doesn't fill that gap. So I think in our in our career transition, we've always got to think of the whole move. You know, not just the not just the fact that oh, I've got to find a job because I've got to pay the bills. I mean, that's you know that's important, but the the, the holistic what am I going to really miss about the opportunity I'm leaving behind needs to be taken care of as well. Really th- thinking about the why, why am I going into this job? Yeah. Don't go for the position uh, or the title or the money really think, yeah. is this something that motivates me? Uh, can I see a you know, potential future? What are my teammates like? Are they, are they good people? And I think thinking of the whole package holistically and yeah, may- maybe sometimes you have to go sideways or even backwards to go forward but i think there's no shame in that i mean most people now are going to be working for their 70s or 80s um so it's going to be yeah, tough isn't it yeah 100 uh, percent. like it's and i said before mate we don't all get to do the stuff we want to do it's not all the time anyway so the world of works a it's a crazy big place you know we've all got our own part to play and it's not always the piece we want but go and play it do it to your best and hopefully move forward Brilliant. And, and Jamie, we're coming to the end of our time and obviously love, love speaking with you. I, I always like speaking to sportsmen. I, I find it quite cathartic myself um, because I think, you know, I'm a huge Roger Federer fan. And, you know, I just like the, the fact that even now, even though he's injured and he's struggling, he still wants to play. And I just, I just love that because it's all about the process. And I think too many people are, are wound up in uh, thinking about the, the final outcome. And obviously, we, we, we'd like to win. But I think if you can find something where you're enjoying the process and you feel you're still, uh, I mean, I don't know how much better Roger is getting, but he enjoys it. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I think if people can find things that they enjoy, um, they should uh, stick with it to some extent. Um, what do you think, Jamie? I, I think it was part of the reason why I was able to play into my mid-30s is that, as I said, I, I loved playing cricket. I loved everything about the game. It was um, – and, you know, I played with a lot of guys who I don't think were quite that fortunate. I don't think – I think they played it because they were good at it or someone paid them to play it. And I think it's a really important piece of longevity is you've got to love what you do. Roger clearly does. 
he's uh, I don't know if there's anyone who doesn't like Roger quite frankly there's probably people who like others more but he's a, he's a hard man not to enjoy when he's playing at his peak he, he does he clearly loves doing what he's doing and that's you know, not everyone gets to you know live his life and be a tennis superstar but yeah it's it's, a, it's an extreme example but yeah. uh, it's pretty clear I think we, we, we need to figure out a way of getting Roger to Nords, um, Jamie. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, we could we could maybe host host an exhibition match out here on uh, on the Hello Turf, maybe. <laughs> Very good. And um, d- just finally, um, uh, yeah, a lot of our listeners are either you know, trying to progress in their career or they're they're looking for their next job. Do you have any particular strategies that have helped you um, in in your career developments and advancement? Well, I've touched on a couple already, but but ultimately, if there's a if there's something I'm really conscious of, it, it's be good to people. It, it's basically take care of people and do the right thing. I, and I, I just I have to live a life where good things happen to good people. I, I just really do. I've seen so many people just maybe not do the right thing, and and maybe just maybe not pay enough attention to to people who they thought weren't important along the way. That it's always been something I've been really conscious of, I guess. And I, I'm not perfect, but don't get me wrong. I you can get busy and you can overlook certain things and you can walk past people when you shouldn't. But I am always really conscious of trying to be polite, try and do the right thing, try and use your manners. I mean, it's a simple, probably a crazy thing to say, but at the end of the day, I want to be known as someone who's a good person, someone who people respect and admire for that reason and, and somebody who can get stuff done through mobilising people. So that's, yeah, that, that, that's something that I find really important is – and in business, I mean, I've always said part of the reason I've stayed in sport, I've had opportunities to jump out into other business. But the thing I love about sport, you clearly get to work with people more often than not who want to be there. It's not heavily paid. You hear a bit about the heavily paid elements of it, but most of it is just a lot of grunt work uh, by some really good people who just love working inside the game, whatever the game is. But the second part about I love working in sport is it generally your vision always comes back to doing the right thing. In a business sense, that's not always the case. It's generally often driven by other determinants. In sport, it generally comes back to what's the right thing to do. And that really works for my values, is if I can generally turn up to work most days thinking, okay, my sole purpose today is to do the right thing and to make sure that you do the right thing by people, whether they're employees or players or whatever around me. And sometimes the right thing can be dismissing people, moving them on, moving to a different, you know, but helping them in that opportunity. It helps me sleep at night. Yeah, and I, and I think sometimes it's quite insightful looking at how um, people deal with subordinates because obviously you have that power structure and you know, some, some people take it as they don't have to be nice. But I do think it's actually quite revealing how you know, your peers you have to be ni- nice to to some extent. Obviously your boss, the, there's that you know, power structure there. But the people below you, it's really quite telling if somebody doesn't treat their subordinates well. And I'm not saying that you have to be best mates, but be respectful. It, it, it is quite insightful, isn't it? That's the important part. So there's a difference there in, in being nice and doing the right thing. Yep. So you know, my, my, my thing is do the right thing, as you see it, in, in what the circumstances you're in right there. And as I said, sometimes that's not a nice thing to do. Sometimes yep. that is a pretty confronting moment, but it, it's still ultimately the right thing. I mean, I think some of the great management um, experiences you can have is having a pretty hard conversation with someone and then, you know, 24 hours later, they can come back to you and say, look, thanks for that. I really appreciate it. In hindsight, it was a bit heated when we were talking, but I really appreciated the respect you showed me to have that conversation. They're good moments. So yeah, there's a, there's a subtle difference, which I'm sure you can understand. It's not about being nice. It's about doing the right thing. Yep. That's a great point. Jamie, um, just going back to cricket, we have the Ashes coming up. <laughs> and, uh, and obviously, um, yeah, the, the, the Aussies are, are looking good in terms of confidence after the T20 triumph. But, I mean, what, what's your view, Jamie? Um, do you think that England have a chance? Oh, 100% they do. So don't confuse the T20 with Test cricket. Like, they're, they're incredibly different. I mean, Australia will feel good about that. But that's a very different team that's going to take on the Ashes. I think of anything, the Indians showed the template uh, last year. I mean, winning in Australia is hard. Australia are a very good team on Australian conditions. And if they get to pick their best team, it's, it's a really experienced, talented team. No doubt about that. I think what the Indians showed the Australians is you've got to make them play all five test matches or do they play four or five? I can't remember. But anyway, play all the series because 
the Indians last year lost the first test in Adelaide pretty embarrassingly, but then bounced back straight away in Melbourne, I think it was. And then from that time on, you could just sense there was, they just kept niggling away. You know, they were just always, they just wouldn't go away. They just kept competing. They, they drew a tough game in Sydney um, and then got to the Gabba where Australia just expected to roll up and win. And India won the game. Like it was just, a, and this was bearing in mind, this is like India's C team. They had a lot of good players out of that team. So I do give England a chance. Ben Stokes back. Everyone knows that's a big, big, big tonic for the English. I really hope they can compete early. Naturally, I'm an Australian still, much as I'm independent <laughs> in this role. I, I'd love to see the Australians ultimately win. But by 2005, we, we say it was one of the great test series. I, I'd hope for a similar series. I really would. I, I'd like to, I mean, I'd like to think Australia just come out on the right side of it this time, not the wrong side of it. But if we can have a series like that, we'll all be happy. What I don't want is, uh, is, is a whitewash or, you know, really one-sided affair, yeah. which I think if that was to happen, it would be in Australia's favour, I think. I, think I give the English, I give them a good fighting chance. I'm, I, they've just got to take the series, take it deep, make Australia play some long, long cricket, try and wear them out. I think those are some great thoughts. Before we um, finally wrap up, Jamie, is there anybody you'd like to give a shout out to who's helped you in life or in your career? Um, not not individually. I mean, I, I'd probably right now, I'd say, you know, I've been very lucky to have an immediate family that have enabled me. I mean, I've been in England for two two months on my own. My family will join me soon, but with COVID in Australia, it's been hard to, to, to get everyone here. So naturally that's hard. Uh, and the sacrifice they make for me to come here is has been unbelievable, quite frankly. But I, I said earlier on, mate, we're all a consequence of what's gone before us. And I've been so lucky to have some wonderful influences in my past. It would seem unfair some ways to call people out. It's I've learned so much for some great leaders that I've been around, you know, in business, in sport, from my very first days at the Winnie Cricket Club. As I said, they were my first cricketing heroes, and they're still the blokes that taught me as much about life as they taught me about cricket. So I, I would reinforce what I said before. It's you know, I've had such great people in my life that are still in my life, and you know, you, you need you need some people to help you row the boat. So uh, you need to have those important connectors, important networks to, to, to help you sort of sail your way through. So no one in particular, mate, other than immediate family. Well, let's hope uh, Mrs. Cox and the kids can be with you soon. Yeah, let's hope so. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I'd, I'd send a shout out, but I doubt they're probably going to be watching your podcast, Harsha. So um, no disrespect, but I don't know if you're going to make it to Mount Eliza, Victoria. But um, if they happen to be watching, Helen, Lockie, Maddie, yeah, love to you. Hope to see you at Christmas time. Jamie, th- thank you so much um, you know, for all, all the time that you've uh, given us this afternoon. It's been really uh, fun chatting about uh, sport, life, psychology, the Stockdale paradox, and, get- <laughs> and, and getting Roger Federer to Lords. <laughs> We've covered some territory, haven't we? But uh, now, look, Harsha, lovely, uh, lovely connecting again, and yeah, look forward to seeing you at the cricket. Yeah, and, and we, we have to speak Federer into existence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we'll do that. Excellent. And with that, thanks, Jamie. And I'll, I'll make sure your uh, contact details and stuff are in the show notes if people want to uh, re- reach out to you um, in any way. But th- thanks once again, Jamie, and uh, have a good rest of the day. Take care. Thanks, Sasha. Take care. Thank you so much for listening and staying to the end. That was such an enjoyable interview. If you would like to listen to more episodes, then please consider subscribing to the podcast, which is available on your favorite providers and subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Stay safe and look after yourself. I hope you will join me again in the future.